The following podcast contains advertisements. If you prefer a podcast without advertisements, you can sign up for our ad-free version at patreon.com lawfare. That's patreon.com lawfare. You'll get rid of the ads and we'll be very grateful. Uh, the court basically says as such. It says, look, Facebook is not a newspaper, but Facebook is also not just like a big shopping mall that lets anyone walk through. Facebook is something in between. And so we have to sort of start from first principles and decide what First Amendment rules make sense in this context. I'm Quinta Jurassic, and this is the Lawfare Podcast, July 15th, 2021. On May 24th, Florida Governor Ron DeSantis signed into law a bill designed to limit how social media platforms can moderate content. Technology companies predictably sued. And on June 30th, Judge Robert Hinkle of the U.S. District Court for the Northern District of Florida granted a preliminary injunction against the law. The legislation, which purported to end censorship online by big tech, received a lot of commentary and a great deal of mockery from academics and journalists. Among other things, it included an exemption for companies that operate theme parks. But Alan Rosenstein argues in A Peace for Lawfare that though the legislation may be poorly written, the issues raised by the litigation are worth taking seriously. This week, on our Arbiters of Truth miniseries on our online information ecosystem, Evelyn Dueck and I spoke with Alan, an associate professor of law at the University of Minnesota Law School and a senior editor at Lawfare, about the Florida legislation. What exactly would the law have done anyway? Why does Allen think the judge underplays the potential First Amendment considerations raised by private companies exerting control over huge swaths of the online public sphere? And what's with the theme park stuff? It's the Lawfare Podcast, July 15th. Florida Man Regulates Social Media. Alan, thank you so much for coming on the podcast to discuss what I think we can all agree is everyone's favorite state of the union. And obviously, I'm referring to Florida, Uh, specifically the recent preliminary injunction granted against this new Florida law that aimed to limit content moderation by social media platforms. There is an enormous amount to get to here, so we wanted to just make sure that we started at the beginning. Tell us the the story of the law. What is it and what does it do? Sure. So thanks for having me. And and yes, Florida is is the sort of legal gift that, that keeps on giving uh, in U.S. constitutional law. So this law, uh, Senate Bill 7072, would limit the ability of social media platforms to moderate all sorts of content. So this is a bill that was uh, signed by Florida Governor Ron DeSantis. This is very much a Republican-led effort based on a a number of grievances that Republicans and conservatives more generally have with social media platforms. Obviously, we all recall when President Trump was kicked off Facebook and Twitter. And I think this really crystallized for a lot of conservatives this feeling um, that they are discriminated against for their political views online. Now, whether that's as an empirical matter actually true is a very different question. There's, I think, a good argument to say that uh, social media has been very good to conservatives. Um, but nevertheless, things like the very high profile banning of and deplatforming of, of Donald Trump have led to a lot of calls for uh, the government, in, especially in conservative states like Florida, uh, as well as Texas, um, which has kind of a similar law that's uh, working through the system, uh, to do something to limit social media moderation. So before we get into the, the specifics of what the law does, I think it's also worth just pointing out um, that the law, although it is framed as a measure about social media platforms, actually applies much more broadly. It basically applies to any internet service. Um, the way it defines social media platform is actually much, much broader than um, what most of us would think of as the canonical social media platform like Facebook or Twitter. It really applies to uh, any internet service. And so it would apply to things like a web hosting company, um, as well as a traditional social media platform. Although there is one notable exception, an explicit carve out in the law for a, a company that, quote, owns and operates a theme park or entertainment complex. 
This is pretty obviously just a kind of sweetheart carve out for Florida's favorite industry, which is Disney World and Universal Studios, and has led to a lot of fun online commentary about what sort of theme park Twitter should buy in order to get out of this law. Um, but as a general matter, you know, it applies to the big national social media companies, you know, to the extent that they do business in, in Florida, which of course they all do because, you know, Florida is a big state and there are lots of users there. Yeah, I got to say, um, my my biggest disappointment with this law being uh, struck down is that I will no longer be able to go on the Reddit roller coaster or the Twitter dunk tank or, you know, the Facebook House of Horrors. Although I suppose there's a good argument that for that one, I should just boot up my Facebook account. Oh, but um, chick. Um, all right. So moving on to um, <laughs> what are some of the clearly less important provisions of the law than the theme park exemption, uh, which I personally would just like to spend a whole hour on. There's a lot in there, and one of the things you were talking about, the, the social and political context of this law, and obviously it coming in, in response to the deplatforming of, of President Trump and conservative anger, which is you know the first indication that it might not have been a fully serious law, and the theme park exemption might have been the second. And then the third is like some of the ways that it actually works in practice, or rather does not work in practice. So let's dig into that a little bit. So it prohibits platforms from banning candidates for political office who have been formally registered to run. It would also prohibit using algorithms to boost or not boost content uh, posted by or about a user who is known by the platform to be a candidate for office. It prohibits censoring, deplatforming or shadow banning a journalistic enterprise. All of this seems extremely broad and in a sense, because of, you know, all of those things are difficult to define. I mean, how do you define about a user, for example? It's tricky to see how the law would actually operate in in practice. So do you think that's being a little bit unfair or do you think that this law would have been implementable anyway? I I don't think it, I don't think it's unfair. I I think that like many laws, it is a combination of Serious provisions. And, and look, it, it is a lengthy law that goes into a lot of detail, um, some of which would be totally implementable, whether it would be constitutional is sort of its own interesting question that I'm sure we'll get to. Uh, but there's plenty in the law that you could absolutely implement. But yes, there are definitely parts of the law that are written very broadly. And whether that's because that was the intention of the drafters and they thought that it could in fact be implemented and that's what they intended, or they just wanted to do something splashy and make a statement. This law has been criticized, I think, in in some senses, quite fairly for being much more of a political stunt than a good faith attempt at legislating. But politics is a mixture of motives all the time. So I, I do think that just because some of the law is not implementable um, because it's very broad, because it's vague, as you point out, that doesn't mean that that all of it is. But again, that still doesn't change the fact that there are provisions of the law, whether it's the part that um, restricts platforms from affecting the prioritization of uh, posts that are quote unquote about a candidate, or there's another part of the law that requires uh, platforms to impose their content moderation policies in a quote-unquote consistent manner. All of these are very vague terms. And in fact, one of the reasons that the law was enjoined is because these terms make the law vague in a way that violates the First Amendment. We do want to make sure that we we get to the actual substance of the judge's order on the injunction here and on the constitutional questions. But before we get to that, I figured it might make sense to dig a little bit more into the specifics. We've talked about a few of the different provisions of the law, besides, of course, the ever-important theme park provision. Are there other portions that you think listeners should be aware of um, as sort of background to understanding this conversation? I I, I do. So... You know, the way I view the law is really divided into three parts um, or three parts that I think are most relevant for our discussion. There's the part about political candidates. There's the part about journalistic organizations. And there's the part about users generally. So with respect to the political candidates, there's the part that Evelyn mentioned, which is this very vague provision regarding posts by or about a candidate. But there's also a much more straightforward provision, which prohibits a company from uh, banning someone who is officially a political candidate. Right. And the bar for being a political candidate is not high. Uh, you just have to basically follow your paperwork with the state of Florida. But this is still an official designation. Um, so th- this is an example, I think, of a part of the law that could be quite straightforwardly implemented. Um, and so we should take that seriously. Right. One could easily imagine Facebook having a list of political candidates and just, you know, knowing that those are people that cannot be kicked off uh, their platform. Again, whether that's legal is a different question, but there's nothing unimplementable about that. With respect to the second part of the law, which is all about journalistic institutions, 
Here, journalistic institution uh, is really basically just defined in the law as a media institution of a particularly large size. And here, one thing that's really notable is that the law bans, quote unquote, censoring of journalistic institutions. But when it defines censoring, uh, it defines it very broadly, including that censoring happens when a uh, social media platform adds any content to a post. So make that concrete. Let's say that a quote unquote journalistic institution writes a post uh, talking about how there's a huge amount of electoral fraud in some state in Florida, and that's false, let's say. And uh, Facebook allows that post to be on its platform, allows that post to go into its news feeds uh, of its users, but attaches a little label to that post saying, actually, there is no indication that there is uh, electoral fraud. You know, for more information, go to this website, right? Or, or check out this PolitiFact fact check. That under the law would be considered censorship and the companies would not be allowed to, to do that. So the protection for journalistic institutions is actually very, very, very broad and goes beyond, I think, what um, we would generally think of as just content moderation. And then there are also some, I think, actually quite interesting provisions of the law with respect to just ordinary uh, users. So on the posting side, the law requires that content moderation policies be public and that they can't be modified more than once a month, uh, in addition to this requirement uh, that they be applied, quote unquote, in a consistent manner. Uh, and then on the content consumption side for users, the law requires that platforms give users the option to view their feeds in chronological rather than algorithmically recommended order. And, and this actually relates to something kind of earlier in the history of social media platforms. You know, when platforms like Facebook and Twitter uh, first came out, um, their news feeds were all chronological. So you would, let's say, uh, have a list of friends on Facebook or you would subscribe to a bunch of users on Twitter and your homepage would show the posts from those individuals, but not ranked by what the algorithm thought you would find most interesting just in a chronological way. Now, at some point, social media platforms changed that to present the users with an algorithmically ranked news feed because that was, quote unquote, more engaging. Um, and a lot of people think that that was actually the beginning of or one of the contributors to social media causing the dysfunction and and um, harming the discourse that I think a lot of us think it does today. And so what this law would do is force is force platforms to give users the option uh, to return to a kind of chronologically based uh, newsfeed. Again, I think this is another example of, of a portion of the law that, you know, while there might be arguments about its constitutionality, are uh, completely implementable. And uh, perhaps, you know, if this was, you know, if this was just what the law was about, would probably even get some bipartisan support. So perhaps predictably, it only took a, a few days after Florida Governor Ron DeSantis signed the bill into law for social media companies to file suit. And frankly, I'm a little surprised that it took them days instead of hours or even minutes. So NetChoice, which is an organization that represents Facebook, Twitter, and other companies, along with the Computer and Communications Industry Association, sued over the law, which started the process that brought us to where we are today. So talk us through their complaint. What claims did they bring? So the complaint uh, alleged a, a lot of problems with the law. You know, one of them is potential violation with Section 230 of the Communications Decency Act. Um, but the, the main part of the complaint was a set of First Amendment arguments that basically argued that platforms have their own First Amendment rights. Um, in particular, they have their own First Amendment rights to decide what they want to host on their platforms. Uh, and that the Florida law, by limiting that, um, violated the platform's First Amendment uh, rights. Yeah, it's interesting, you know, the, the claim to have First Amendment rights on behalf of the platforms, because, I mean, it, that's obviously true under, under current doctrine. But something that I've always found a little jarring in this context is the contrast between what platforms say out of court and what they say in court on this point. So, you know, out of court, platforms like to say, we're just neutral platforms. And as Judge Hingle notes in cases like this one, the plaintiffs say correctly that they use editorial judgments in making content moderation decisions, much as more traditional media providers use editorial judgment when choosing what to put in or leave out of a publication or broadcast. So that is, you know, out of court platforms like to say the thing that we're, you know, we tongue in cheek name this podcast after, which is we don't want to be arbiters of truth. But then in cases like this one, they assert that they use editorial judgment and therefore should be protected by the First Amendment, just like traditional media platforms, which of course, you know, those editorial judgments are to a certain extent somewhat intrinsically about, you know, making judgments about what is 
is fit to print and, and what is not. And I find that sort of rhetorically jarring. So, I mean, clearly not as a matter of doctrine, it doesn't make a difference, but does it matter that platforms are somewhat two-faced about this proposition or do you think I'm sort of being fair in saying that they're two-faced? So platforms definitely do speak out of both sides of their mouth on this question of whether they are just neutral platforms and therefore shouldn't be liable for anything that their users post versus on the, on the other hand, they're intrinsically editorial type entities and therefore should have the full panoply of editorial First Amendment rights. I mean, I, I think that part of it is you know what they say publicly and that just doesn't really have much bearing on the constitutional question. Part of it is also that they're both, right? They are not simply like a completely neutral conduit, right? They're not like the post office, right? Which has no idea and does not care what you put in your envelope. But on the other hand, they're not like the New York Times, right? Which thinks very carefully about every single piece of content that it publishes, whether written by its own writers or by outside writers. So I think the question is not, um, you know, are they editorial entities like newspapers or are they neutral conduits like the post office? Well, there's something in between. So what are they? And then let's accept that they are something new for First Amendment purposes and then figure out what the relevant doctrines are to protect their rights, whatever we think their rights should be, and most importantly, to further First Amendment values in society. And, and I think to the court's credit, and I think this is a really important part of the opinion, and I was really sort of glad to see this, uh, the court basically says as such, it says, look, Facebook is not a newspaper, but Facebook is also not just like a big shopping mall that lets anyone walk through. Facebook is something in between. And so we have to sort of start from first principles and decide what First Amendment rules make sense in this context. Now, I, I don't think the court actually did a very good job doing that in some respects. I think sort of the opinion is a mixed bag. Um, and I'm sure we'll, we'll talk about that. Um, but I think that's the, the most important the most important issue. The, the other thing I, I want to say is I think it's also really important to be clear about what we mean when we talk about the rights of companies, the First Amendment rights of entities. So you know, people have rights because people are people and they have dignity and autonomy interests, right? You know, I have a right to speak freely because it's part of my human flourishing as a human being to be able to speak freely. Companies have First Amendment rights, um, but those rights are not because the company itself has dignity and autonomy interests. The people in those companies have dignity and autonomy interests, but the company itself has rights because we as a society have decided that it is useful socially to have this fiction that companies are quote unquote legal persons um, that have these constitutional rights. So the, the right, the correct question I think is not to ask, you know, does Facebook have a first amendment right in the way that you or I have a first amendment right? It's given the things that the first amendment is trying to do. And we can talk about what those goals are and, and there are many of them and sometimes they conflict. Does it make sense to, in a particular instance, give Facebook the first amendment right to resist a government regulation. And so I think that's a way that can kind of clarify what the actual stakes are. I just want to say I appreciate your using the the term human flourishing here. And I really feel that, you know, Mark Zuckerberg's ability to decide whether or not Facebook allows coronavirus misinformation speaks deeply to his individual human flourishing. Well, no, well, well but, but I mean, it's an interesting point, right? Because again, I think this is like a, a real confusion that sometimes happens. I mean, that sometimes happens in, in our discussions of, of corporate First Amendment rights, right? Which is, you know, Mark Zuckerberg is not the same as Facebook. The whole point of Facebook existing as a separate corporation is that Facebook is not responsible for Mark Zuckerberg's personal actions and debts and obligations. And similarly, Mark Zuckerberg is not responsible for Facebook's assets and, and decisions. And so the whole point of having corporate personhood is to say, um, sure, corporations can have rights, but they can have those rights as corporations. Those are not the same as the rights that the individuals that work for, or even in the case of shareholders, let's say, own the corporation have. No, absolutely. So I want to bring us back to the specifics of the judge's opinion. And I do want to talk about your critique of his ruling. But before we do that, can you just walk us through precisely what he ruled? As we mentioned at the beginning, there's he granted the motion for a preliminary injunction. What did he enjoin and why? So he enjoined all of the provisions of the law that relate to social media moderation. There are some other parts of the law involving antitrust, um, but those are actually pretty separate. 
it's not clear why they were rolled into this particular law. Um, but all the things we've talked about, the, the stuff about political candidates, about journalistic entities, about users, that was all enjoined. And it's kind of overdetermined why it was enjoined. The judge just found a ton of uh, problems with it. So, uh, you know, one issue the, the judge found was that the law was kind of hopelessly partisan. So, you know, w- when it comes to the First Amendment, the, the thing that the government really, really can't do is discriminate on the basis of viewpoint. So, the, you know, the government can't say we're going to allow speech that supports this controversial political idea and we're not going to allow speech that opposes it or we're going to you know, promote speech by Democrats and we're going to not promote speech by Republicans. Right. That is impermissible viewpoint discrimination. And while the law itself does not engage in that, right, the law itself is written in a, a viewpoint neutral way. It's pretty obvious from the public statements that Governor DeSantis and other Florida officials made, as well as just a bunch of other circumstantial evidence that this, the, the intention of this law was not a good faith attempt to make sure that all views are represented and everyone gets due process online, but it was just a a way of fighting back against big, bad, lefty, big tech. And, and so that was kind of hanging over the whole discussion and I think made the judge rightly very skeptical of the motives behind the law. That, that was one thing that the judge found. Another problem the judge had, and we've talked about this um, earlier in this conversation, was just how vague the the law is. Um, Vagueness is a problem in any law, but it's especially a problem in uh, laws that deal with speech and touch on First Amendment rights, because the worry about vagueness is that if you have a vague restriction on speech, that'll actually restrict not just the speech the law perhaps intends to restrict, but it will chill even more speech because people will err on the side of uh, saying even less so as to avoid running afoul of the law. And there are lots of parts where the law is vague, right? Uh, For example, what does it mean for a post to be about a political candidate? Or uh, what does it mean for content moderation policies to be imposed um, in a consistent manner? These are all really vague terms, and it's not clear how you would operationalize them, or at least not under the law. And then finally, you know, the other, I think, really straightforward ground for the for enjoining the law was that it just goes much farther than it needs to. So, um, you know, when it comes to First Amendment issues, you know, laws can sometimes be permissible if they infringe on speech, um, but they have to be. And there's lots of different formulations for this. One label is called narrowly tailored. And the idea being that a law shouldn't go substantially beyond um, what is necessary to achieve the uh, the goal and and the judge argued that in many respects lots of lots of parts of these of this law was completely unnecessary um, so again there are lots of examples here I think the most important one is the part uh, in the journalistic entity section about censoring and censoring including not just removing uh, a post but not even allowing a social media company to attach its own disclaimer to that post right that goes far beyond what might be necessary to make sure that let's say all views are represented online so. Uh, those were the kind of the main reasons that the judge enjoined the law. There's some additional, I think you might characterize it as dicta that we should we should get into. Uh, but these are at least the kind of most straightforward reasons the law was enjoined. Okay, so let's talk about the thing that we've jested at a few times, which is how the judge makes sense of this thing called platforms and your sort of your commentary about that. So Judge Hingle writes that where social media fit in traditional First Amendment jurisprudence is not settled. You wrote about this in an essay on lawfare that this is the most important part of the opinion because it recognizes in ways that legal and political discourse around online content moderation rarely has that social media platforms cannot easily be shoehorned in traditional First Amendment rules. And I just want to really like footstamp and, and, and agree with that. I think the, the public discourse around this drives me pretty crazy. When platforms make decisions people don't like, there are cries of, you know, these platforms are too powerful, rein them in. And when platforms make decisions that people like, the cries become, they're private companies, the First Amendment doesn't apply, you idiots, they can do what they like. And I think we need a better, sort of smarter conversation about this and that the law, you know, needs to develop to accommodate these platforms that are sort of entities of a type that the law hasn't really had to grapple with before. So this is a good start, but it's obviously not the end of the matter. You wrote that the judge got it partly right and partly wrong. So in your opinion, what did he get right and what did he get wrong? So I I think he got overall it right about this law, right? This law has so many problems with it that it is, I think, pretty unsalvageable. But where I think the judge got it wrong was to say, well, this law is really bad 
And therefore, any attempt to limit the content moderation decisions of social media platforms would violate the First Amendment. And so to unpack that, I think it's useful to go into the, the kind of specific set of arguments that the judge uses to make the, the broader claims um, about the First Amendment's protections for social media moderation. So the the judge, and I don't want to get too kind of hung up on the, the opinion it, itself and sort of try to figure out and, and instead focus more on the argument. But, you know, after the judge spends all this time talking about how social media platforms they're not really newspapers on the one hand, but they're not, let's say, like shopping malls on the other hand. He actually ends up basing a lot of the rest of his analysis on a, a case out of the Supreme Court about newspapers. And so this is this famous case called Miami Herald versus a Tornillo. Uh, this is a case from the early 70s, um, also coincidentally about a Florida law. And in that case, Florida passed uh, what's called a, a, a right of reply or a right of response law. And basically it said, look, if you're a newspaper and you write something critical about, uh, let's say, a politician, um, you have to then allow that politician in your newspaper to respond, right? You don't have to endorse that, obviously, but you have to create space. You have to allow this politician to uh, respond to the thing that you you said. And that case went up to the Supreme Court, and the Supreme Court said that that law was a violation of the First Amendment for two reasons. Uh, the first reason was that uh, by imposing this kind of obligation, the government was limiting uh, newspapers' ability to fully cover political issues because, of course, newspapers are physical products. They're limited in physical space and editorial capacity. And so the concern was that by having this right of reply, you would crowd out other forms of news in the newspaper, or you might even incentivize the newspaper to not cover politics at all uh, so that it would avoid ever running afoul of this law. Now, this argument, I think, is a very reasonable one, but it kind of obviously does not apply to social media companies because social media companies don't have these space or editorial constraints. Facebook's capacity on the newsfeed is essentially infinite. And it, the whole point is that it doesn't do any editorial moderation up front of what its users write. So there's really no concern that forcing Facebook to keep certain content online will somehow crowd out, at least when it comes to the actual capacity of Facebook's databases to host that information. But in Torneo, the court in kind of a really conclusory one paragraph at the, at the end, though this is ultimately the part of the opinion that's become really famous, says, but look, even if, even if there's no limit, even if there's no worry that this law will crowd out other activities of the newspaper, it's still unconstitutional because the First Amendment simply guarantees editorial freedom on behalf of newspapers. And that and that a restriction on editorial freedom could lead to editorial suppression. And that's really bad. And so this is unconstitutional. And if it sounds like I'm being unfair to the opinion because I'm making it sound like it was really conclusory, um, I really encourage people to go and read the opinion. I, I included the argument in full in the law for piece that I wrote because it's so short. Basically, the, the court in this incredibly conclusory paragraph says, the First Amendment protects editorial freedom because editorial freedom is protected by the First Amendment. And this holding has kind of hung around in First Amendment doctrine for the last 45 years and is the main thing that social media companies and net choice in its lawsuit against this law um, glom onto when they want to push back on, on any restriction on the content moderation policies of um, social media companies, because they say, look, just like newspapers, we have these editorial freedoms and they are under Tornillo, completely protected by the First Amendment uh, and therefore game over. And I think that's wrong as a matter of both law based on the doctrine and also as a matter of policy. And we can, we can talk about that. But that is the way that the judge really goes from a holding about this specific law to a kind of a much broader set of dicta about really any attempt to limit the content moderation decisions of social media platforms. So I want to push on this point just a little bit and a, a point that you just made about how platforms don't make any content moderation decisions as the content is 
posted. So this was a was an important point in the judge's judgment, as, as you were saying, about the distinction between social media and newspapers, that the idea that it, it cannot be said that a social media platform to whom most content is invisible to a substantial extent is in, indistinguishable for First Amendment purposes from a newspaper or other traditional medium. And this idea that the content is invisible to a platform is a little jarring, in my opinion. So one of the big arguments about social media is that while outside observers can't really get a good picture of what is going on on them, platforms can see everything way too much, in fact, is the concern. And the judge also says uh, social media providers, in contrast, routinely use algorithms to screen all content for unacceptable material. And there's this like prior restraint uh, function that they very often play on a bunch of content. So as it gets uploaded, it gets run through a whole bunch of systems that check it for whether it's, you know, from child porn to terrorist material to hate speech. And the vast majority of content that gets flagged for those kinds of categories actually doesn't end up appearing on the site and doesn't get seen by a human, but does get seen by the platform in a sense that it gets seen by its editorial judgment as embodied in those checking algorithms. So I, I guess, you, I think you might want to push back on this, but I, I'm, I'm curious whether you think that is a fair characterization. It, it's not quite editorial judgment in the same way that an editor sits down and looks at an editorial or an op-ed that's been sent in and decides whether it should go online. But there is this function of whether a social media platform will permit certain content before it lands in public view. I, I, that's a totally fair point. That, that's a totally fair point. I, I don't think, though, that that I don't think that by itself would would support striking down content moderation laws. And and there are two reasons for this. So first, one reason why it's important um, in the newspaper context that um, newspapers do editorial filtering on the front end is because if you're going to impose a mandate that newspapers publish things, and part of what newspapers do is they edit the things that they publish, and editorial capacity is finite, that is going to put a large burden on newspapers. So, so one of the reasons the right of reply statute was struck down in Tornillo is because, you know, be between something getting sent to a newspaper and it getting published, the newspaper has to spend some time and resources getting it ready for publication, right? That is not the case for social media companies. They may have to scan a user post to make sure that it does not contain terrorist content or child pornography or hate speech, but the marginal cost of that is zero. Right, essentially, for all intents and purposes. The other reason why I don't think the, the editorial filtering that platforms do, in fact, do kind of helps their case is that the other reason why, in a case like Tornillo, the court cared about the editorial function of a newspaper is that part of the service that a newspaper offers is that it tells the readers, hey, we are curating very much what we think you should know. Um, and so when you open up a newspaper, you're not just opening up a huge kind of public square of content that may have been filtered for minimal standards that, like, you know, it is not flagrantly illegal. No, you are getting the Miami Herald's view of the world, or you are getting the New York Times's view of the world. And in a media sphere, it is really useful to be able to have editorial institutions that have certain viewpoints, because those viewpoints provide additional information to the listeners. Now, Facebook, and here, this may get us back to the earlier part of this conversation when you were talking about how, you know, social media platforms talk out of both sides of their mouths in terms of whether they're neutral platforms or not. You know, Facebook and Twitter have, have traditionally had very minimal editorial controls beyond um, things like scanning for, let's say, child pornography, right? When, when the, the, the whole point of Facebook, or at least as I understand it, is that Facebook presents you kind of the entire world. Twitter presents you the entire world. And so restricting their ability to censor content based on, let's say, politics does not remove a unique editorial voice from the marketplace in the way that making the New York Times publish Republicans or making the Wall Street Journal publish Democrats would. Or at least I think that is an important argument that we should take into account. So one of the things that you argue in your lawfare essay was that, um, and I'm quoting you here, throughout the opinion, Judge Hinkle undervalues the government interest behind laws limiting content moderation. Can you unpack that for us a little more? 
Sure. So I think there are two legitimate interests that a government could have in limiting social media content moderation. Now, again, I'm not saying that the Florida law was a good attempt at that. It was not. And I'm not saying that that's what the backers of the Florida law had in mind. I think in many ways, this was not a good faith law. But I think we should consider whether we could defend a good faith version of this law, right? And, and I think we could, because I think there are, in fact, two really important values that a uh, government can legitimately reference um, when justifying a law like this. So the first value is giving its citizens a set of due process-like protections for their speech. So, you know, one of the reasons we have the First Amendment is because part of human flourishing, you know, part of have, living a good life is being able to speak publicly, being able to communicate your views to others. Now, just because our public squares have become privatized, just because our public square is Facebook and Twitter, doesn't mean that that value of being able to get on Facebook and get on Twitter and say what you think, that that goes away. Now, Facebook and Twitter are private entities. So I really want to be clear. I'm not arguing that because they function in some certain ways analogously to the public square, that somehow the First Amendment directly applies to them. It most certainly does not, you know, arguments to the contrary. Maybe we can get into that later. What I'm saying is that there's still a value that is very similar to the First Amendment value of being able to speak in an unfettered way in the public square. And that doesn't change just because you get on Facebook. So I, as a government, I think could very reasonably say, I think it'd be better for my citizens if they were treated, quote unquote, fairly by these social media platforms. And let's say I think fairly means that you can't have your content moderation policies changed on you every, you know, more than once a month, um, that this must be public, that you can't be discriminated on based on your political views. So I think that's one legitimate ground for government intervention. I think the second legitimate ground for government intervention is trying to make sure that our public sphere uh, or that our public discourse is diverse and includes all sorts of different voices, including voices that for whatever reason, the the powers that be, whether they're liberal or conservative, dislike. So, you know, I, I think one of the many complaints that progressives have absolutely correctly had against First Amendment decisions like Citizens United, which limited the government's ability to put limits on campaign finance expenditure, is that the Supreme Court would say things like equalizing discourse, making sure that everyone has, if not equal, then more equal power in the public square. That's not legitimate, right? And I think a lot of progressives respond to that by saying, wait, why isn't that legitimate? Equality is an important value. And because it's such an important value, the government should be able to promote it, not just, let's say, economically, um, but also in public discourse. So I think a similar argument can be made here. I think a state or the federal government could argue, say, you know, we think that it's important for all sides in public debate to have a forum those forums are private. So we're going to pass a law putting obligations on those private forums to ensure a certain quality of media access. Now, again, that doesn't mean that this law was the right way to do it. That doesn't mean that the government can do anything or impose any costs on social media companies to achieve that. That doesn't mean that social media companies shouldn't be able to raise certain objections uh, based on what they think the effects of those law will be. Um, but I think that the kind of categorical dismissal of those as legitimate government values is a huge mistake and one that progressives who are, I think, otherwise quite pleased that this kind of Republican law was struck down should should not be so pleased about. This is not good dicta if you care about any sort of equality or due process on private platforms. So I completely agree with that. And it sort of gets back to what I was saying about how there's sort of the different cries between, you know, what people think of what platforms are based on substantive outcomes uh, a lot of the time. And, and sort of it's, I think it's really useful to push on that as, as you're doing. And, you know, I think you're right that often progressives in particular in, the, in this context are too dismissive of the underlying issues that are raised by the kinds of laws that the Florida law is 
getting at, um, which are done in a really poorly drafted way that's vague and sort of performative. You know, I, I again, as we were saying earlier, it's not clear that this law was ever meant to go into practice and things like the theme park exemption, you know, I'm not saying progressives should embrace that kind of thing, but there's a lot of things, you know, in the, in the law that I actually think are, are kind of valid, like the the idea that platforms should give users notice when they're banned or when they're shadow banned. I mean, shadow ban has become a bogeyman of conservatives um, thrown around as a, you know, a big scary word. But we do know that platforms downrank content and reduce its visibility sometimes drastically um, in a way that is kind of editorial judgment. And in my opinion, it's it's valid to want to know when and how they're doing that and whether it's politically biased. Now, the idea that they're politically biased about against conservatives, as you were saying earlier, there's no evidential basis for that. In fact, there's, you know, sort of evidence to the contrary, but they could be politically biased. Um, I always go back to Jonathan Zittrain's argument um, from, I think it's half a decade now, that, you know, Facebook could swing an election and no one would know any better. And we should be scared about that. Um, and so the idea that they're doing that kind of thing I do think they should be more transparent and and give people notice about that, which is one of the the pieces that the law is is getting at, and that we shouldn't be dismissive about that. And so, you know, I'm curious though, given that this law was a very ham fisted attempt at doing that, how do we get at that in other ways? To be honest, I'm not optimistic that we will be able to get there in other ways, and and the reason is that I I am worried that this, like everything else, is just being consumed in the maw of the culture war. That at this point, this has become kind of a hobby horse for conservatives, and the way that they are pushing it is going to be so distorted by partisanship and by the specter of Trump and just by kind of the worst aspects of the right, um, that you're just going to get bad laws out of this. And that those bad laws are going to create reactions from the left that are, are going to view the issue very categorically, right, in the way we've been talking about that, well, if the Republicans are for limiting social media moderation, well, that must mean that social media moderation policies are amazing, and Facebook and Twitter are the best, and therefore we shouldn't do anything here. And so I, I'm not that optimistic, especially because, and we kind of skated over this issue at the beginning of the conversation, um, there's actually not that much that states can do here um, because of Section 230, because Section 230 preempts contrary state law and immunizes platforms. Which just for, I should say, just for listeners who, who aren't familiar, is Section 230 of the Communications Decency Act. Really? Do you think there's a single listener of this podcast at this point <laughs> that doesn't know what Section 230 I mean, I have like normies who don't Look, even you study can, you this can never thing be too say, sure. oh, do you study Section 230? <laughs> I'm like, yeah, yeah. Um, anyway, no, I think it's a good point. Let's let's set some of the, the, or at least let's set how 230 is relevant to this conversation. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. Okay, so so I'll try to do this in under, in under two minutes, right? So Section 230 has two important parts. The first part, and this is the part that it's most famous for, it, it immunizes platforms for the stuff their users post. But the other thing that Section 230 does, and this has generally not been very controversial, though it has gotten much more controversial lately, is that it immunizes platforms for um, quote-unquote good faith moderation of obscene content, violent content, and quote, otherwise objectionable content. And so this has generally been understood to give platforms should basically infinite discretion as to what content not only to not only to keep up on their platforms but also to take down on their platforms. There are interesting arguments that have been circulating lately about whether or not this provision just on the, its text should be read to include uh, content moderation based on political content. Uh, but that is still the majority position that basically under this what's called the Good Samaritan immunity, platforms have essentially unlimited discretion in deciding what they they will and will not host on their platforms. And then in addition, Section 230 also says that states cannot pass laws that conflict with this, right? So Section 230 explicitly preempts state law that is inconsistent with Section 230, right? And large portions of the Florida law are inconsistent with Section 230 and large portions of any law that try to really meaningfully restrict content moderation policies would be in violation of Section 230. So that really leaves it up to the federal government, if it wants to, to limit content moderation by social media companies, but for a variety of institutional and political factors that is highly unlikely to happen. So what I think you'd have to find is a Republican state that passes a law 
but that somehow avoids the problems that happen when this goes through the Trumpist policy process. And I, I'm just not convinced that that's going to happen anytime soon. Yeah, I want to reflect on that a little bit more. I mean, I guess my question is sort of given everything that you just set out about how sort of hopelessly warped this entire discussion has become insofar as it's become a discussion that is on one side about, I would argue, manufactured culture war. And on the other side, a lot of, you know, academics and researchers and podcasters um, saying, well, actually, you know, this is how it works. I worry that there's no good way, basically, for people who know what they're talking about to engage that, you know, there were a lot of times in the Trump administration where Trump would do something that was unhinged in some way or another. And commentators, myself included, sometimes would sort of raise their hands and say, well, actually, you know, under different circumstances, and if this was done in a different way, there, there might be a good argument for this. But there, these aren't different circumstances. The circumstances are terrible. So is there any way to engage here? Is the better thing to do just to kind of take a step back and not engage? I mean, another way to phrase it is to ask, you know, whether we and everyone else having this conversation are sort of getting played by, in this case, the Florida State Legislature and Ron DeSantis by talking about the issues this law raises seriously and taking them seriously instead of just dismissing them out of hand. I, I think we're getting played by both sides, or I think there's the danger of getting played by both sides, right? So there's a danger of getting played by Florida Republicans and taking this law as a good faith attempt, which again, I'm not convinced that it is. But there's the other danger of getting played by social media companies, uh, you know, and letting them get away with far more expansive First Amendment arguments than they have any business being able to get away with. You know, look, it, it, it's hard, it's hard to have a good discussion about any of these issues because of all these cultural and political factors you identify. But right, our job as podcasters and you know, people who write long technical blog posts is to at least offer to those who are interested our view of you know, what we think the best legal and policy answer is. And I think that even if we're never going to have the opportunity to examine a good version of this law because you know, the states won't pass it and the federal government won't pass it, I still think it's useful to clarify um, just so that we are all clear that there should be limits on the one hand for state attempts to limit content moderation policies, but on the other hand, that technology companies and internet platforms should not be able to wrap themselves in the First Amendment, which is you know, a, a famous and very charismatic part of the Constitution. They shouldn't be able to wrap themselves in the First Amendment anytime they say, well, we're doing content moderation. And so I think just being clear on that is useful for the debate um, as we evaluate other arguments that social media companies make, even if it's not likely that in the near future, we're going to get kind of a better version of this law coming out of the states or the federal government. Yeah, I definitely agree with that. We're getting played by both sides. And it gets back to what I was saying about the the two-facedness of, of social media companies here, that they are neutral when it suits them and, you know, fully protected editors that, you know, deserve the full uh, spectrum of First Amendment protection when it when it suits them as well. And, you know, as the judge says, maybe there, there's something in the middle, but we're still sort of struggling to articulate and sort of think about how that looks actually in practice in the law because we don't have good tools for that. And I think um, this gets to sort of maybe a point, sort of how, how do we conceptualize what they are. And one of the arguments that you make in your piece is that the problem with the judge's dismissal of the idea that platforms aren't bottlenecks like cable companies in, in Turner. So one of the reasons why cable companies could be regulated in a way that other editors and other broadcasters couldn't was because of this scarcity argument that there's only so much space. And so there's a government interest in being able to allocate that space in various ways. Um, you say that the, the judge ignores the actual bottleneck for social media platforms. It's not the ability for platforms to serve content, which is indeed effectively infinite, but rather the ability of audiences to consume it. Digital bandwidth is unlimited, but user attention and the newsfeed real estate that dominates it most certainly is not. And 
I want to push back on the idea that that's entirely new necessarily, this attention scarcity argument, which is definitely uh, a prominent one in the way that we talk and think about uh, platforms and, and what's new here in general. So there's an apocryphal story that the last person to have read every book existing in his day was the English poet Samuel Taylor Coleridge, who died in 1834, so, you know, a, a while ago. But even in 1834, it would have been impossible to read um, every single book. Uh, the Gutenberg Press was invented around the, the 1470. And so, you know, there would have been millions of books in print by that that day. And the idea that anyone could read every book right now is is obviously laughable. So, why do you think that attention scarcity is new now? What is it about platforms that makes that something more salient that we should be more concerned about? Oh, I, I, I'm not. Sure. I don't think attention scarcity is is new for all the reasons you just said. I just think, nor do I think whether it's new or not should matter. I'm just looking at the situation right now, which is that right now there are several giant entities collectively, the small number of giant entities that collectively control an enormous amount of our attention. Now, whether you want to call them monopolies in the kind of technical sense, I don't know, right? There are a lot of empirical questions, and there are also just a lot of conceptual questions about what do we mean by monopoly. But if you think that we should always err on the side of creating more speech, of more diverse speech, of creating more avenues of access, right? That is just a healthier society when more people get to talk, even if some of what they say other people view as offensive, then the fact that these social media platforms can control so much of our attention um, should be concerning and should be an argument potentially for some for some government regulation. Now, again, doctrinally, right, and you have to kind of go into the weeds of Tornillo and this case called Red Lion and the Turner case and all of that. You know, doctrinally, it's not clear what the relevance of market concentration is to the First Amendment. Um, analysis and the court has never been entirely clear. And I, I'm willing to say that to the extent Tornillo thinks that um, market concentration doesn't matter, that part of the opinion is just wrong and we should just move on and get over it. But I think just from like a policy and com- common sense perspective, right? If Twitter and Facebook and I don't know, maybe a couple other large companies control most of our attention and they just all decide that a particular thing is uh, not to be put on their platforms, that should give us pause. Now, sometimes that'll be okay, right? It's okay, I think, if they decide that child pornography should not be on their platforms. That's a great that's a great thing, right? But that's because child pornography has no re- redeeming First Amendment value. But like it or not, the First Amendment recognizes that political speech, including political speech that people find really offensive, that some people might think is really damaging and bad for democracy, right? The First Amendment recognizes that that not only has value, but in some sense has the most value of any speech that falls under the First Amendment. And so I just don't think it matter, makes sense as a policy matter to say, well, under the First Amendment, obviously the government couldn't prohibit this speech, but we're totally okay if a bunch of private companies act in a way that leads to the same conclusion, right? Again, not because the First Amendment applies legally to these companies, it most certainly does not, but because the values underlying the First Amendment don't just go away once you move from public, quote unquote, moderation or censorship to private moderation or censorship. So I want to close by asking you for your your forecast of what you expect is going to happen going forward, not just in this litigation over the Florida law, but also when it comes to, we mentioned uh, legislation that Texas is considering, maybe other laws from other Republican state legislatures. Should we be expecting more laws like this? And if so, do you think the legislation will get any more sophisticated? How do you think it will fare in court? Yeah. So I, I think it's actually going to be pretty interesting. So so Florida has already appealed this decision up to the 11th Circuit. We'll see what the 11th Circuit says. Um, I think the 11th Circuit will uphold a lot of this injunction, but it might not uphold all of it. It might actually be a little careful, more careful than the district court judge was in kind of picking and choosing those parts of it that are problematic and those parts of it, like I think the um, you know requirement to publicize your content moderation policies, not changing them more than months a month, those maybe survive. And if those survive, that'll be jurisprudentially incredibly interesting. Either way, this might go up to the Supreme Court. Even on the Supreme Court, I think this is less obvious. I would guess still that the conservatives on the court are sufficiently traditional and the liberals on the court sufficiently 
will see through this Texas, this Florida law so as to strike it down. But I don't know. You have people like Justice Thomas signaling all sorts of interesting things about what are the permissible regulations that governments can put on social media companies. And really, it only takes one dissent to take an argument that um, is you know, crazy and off the wall and, and kind of put it into the quote-unquote legal Overton window. So I think just the Florida law saga will be interesting. As to other laws, I'm sure we'll get a lot of copycats. We're going to get something probably out of Texas, uh, though I, I think as we're recording, the, the Texas Democrats have essentially boycotted the legislative process over some voting restrictions. So the, the Texas political situation is, is pretty fluid right now. The Texas law is interesting. Um, it's pretty similar to the Florida law, but in some ways it's much broader. Um, it does not as, as I understand it, um, single out political speech for protection in the way that the Florida law does. Uh, and, and this presents an interesting question because on the one hand, it, by not limiting itself to political speech, takes away one of the problems that the Florida law had, which was that it was content-based, right? It singled out political speech for additional uh, protection. And under First Amendment law, content-based restrictions tend to be viewed much more skeptically than what are so-called content-neutral restrictions. On the other hand, by, by making the law more expansive in the Texas case and by applying it to much more speech, it also increases the burden on social media companies. And it really does raise the specter that the Texas law could ruin platforms by making it just too difficult for them to do any kind of moderation. And as we know, when you don't have moderation, you end up with just a horrible cesspool that no one wants to use. So I think seeing how the, the Texas law advances will be an interesting opportunity to think through the advantages and disadvantages of content neutrality versus uh, having a more limited but therefore content-based regulation. But uh, but I, I, again, I, I think that the, the legal issues here are much more serious and more worth us taking seriously than the politics uh, of it are. The politics is bad faith. The politics is pretty ugly. But I think part of what we should do as you know, good legal and policy analysts is try to look past the politics and try to understand, okay, but the underlying legal issues, what's the right answer? And I think it's much more complicated, much more sophisticated than I think a lot of people have until now made it out to be. Totally. And I think it's a really important point that you just made there about how quickly this is moving, like the effect of Justice Thomas's one dissent and the, the shifting of the Overton window and sort of just generally there's something in the ether that people want to do something here uh, and the law needs to respond. I think for a very long time, the First Amendment was sort of seen as closing the door to any argument here that there would be possible regulation. You know, it's it's clear that these are private companies. They're protected by the First Amendment. End of story. Um, let's not even try writing any laws. And I think that's definitely going to be tested. And I don't think it's at all clear what's going to come out of that. I think that there's uh, just general uneasiness about the state of the law here. And who knows what could happen? It's, it's not like the First Amendment. And it's not like any of this doctrine is actually that old or, you know, timeless. It doesn't go back to the founding, uh, funnily enough. So I think it's exciting times to be to be studying this. Before we wrap completely, you wrote a 4,000-word blog post for, for Lawfare about this, which everyone should absolutely go and read. But given that, I want to make sure, was there anything else in that that we didn't get to that you want to emphasize or cover? Well, I, I just want to sort of respond to what you just said and, and to say you know, not only is this doctrine not particularly old, it's not even particularly coherent. I mean, it's, it's honestly, it's, it's, hard, it's hard to call this even constitutional law a lot of the First Amendment. It is so, I mean, made up makes it sound like I'm criticizing it necessarily. And it's, it's much just more that it, it's so sensitive to policy considerations that I think it's just is a huge mistake to assume that precedents that were created during the age of the radio and newspaper and cable television apply in any sort of predictable or straightforward way to this new technological and social situation. Right? We don't know what a Supreme Court precedent means until the Supreme Court tells us in the case when it decides how far to push that precedent. Um, and so I think anyone who you know, reads a case like Tornillo or Turner or Redline or, or anything and then sort of confidently predicts, oh, well, therefore, this is obviously how it should apply to social media. I, I, I think they're just kidding themselves. And, and I think because of that, it would be a huge mistake for you know, progressives or people on the left or moderates or who, you know, however people want to think of themselves to uh, assume that the First Amendment doctrine is clear on this issue, because then all you are doing is you are ceding the legal thinking and policymaking to um, the other side. And as we have seen time and time again, and we see through the Florida law, the other side is not the sort of people that I want coming up with the new arguments and the new laws, right? I'd much rather we all just accept that this is a much more open field 
Uh, and if you want to shape the future of the First Amendment, you have to be constructive. You have to say, okay, you know, let me start from first principles and try to figure out what I think is the best case for content moderation or restrictions um, and really make that argument rather than just saying, well, this is obviously legally frivolous. And so I don't have to worry about it because I think before long, we will all have to worry about this. All right. Let's end it there. Ellen, thank you so much for coming on. Thanks for having me. You've been listening to Arbiters of Truth, the Lawfare Podcast's miniseries on our online information ecosystem. You can find past episodes in the Lawfare Podcast feed, and we'll be back with another episode next Thursday. The Lawfare Podcast is produced in cooperation with the Brookings Institution. Our music is performed by Sophia Yan. Our audio engineer this episode was Hamza Shitu, and our producer is Jen Pacha Howell. Please rate and review the Lawfare Podcast on whatever app you use. And thanks for listening.